competition they're looking for, they win. Ignore them, you win. Welcome, everyone. I am Ari Ingle, the Director of Creative Community for Peace. It's a pleasure to have everyone joining us again today. Uh, Creative Community for Peace is a nonprofit entertainment industry organization comprised of prominent members of the entertainment community who have come together to promote the arts to, as a bridge to peace, to counter anti-Semitism within the entertainment industry, and to galvanize against the cultural boycott of Israel. Uh, to learn more about our work and to support our work, please visit ccfpeace.com. That is ccfpeace.com or creativecommunityforpeace.com. We are once again glad to have all of you with us today in our public square and joining us for this installment of our Dispelling the Myth series, which is an educational series of conversations with some of the leading experts on the issues and challenges facing Israel and the Jewish people today. Today, we're going to be discussing Israel's place at the United Nations and how Israel has become the Jew amongst the nations. Please feel free to leave questions in the Q&A section of the chat, and I'll try to get to as many of them as possible towards the end of the discussion. We just ask everyone that you please post questions in the Q&A section only. All other comments or ideas can be emailed to us at info at creativecommunityforpeace.com. That's info at creativecommunityforpeace.com. Com. We always love hearing from everybody um, and your uh, remarks and your comments. Uh, in conversation with me today is Hillel Neuer, who is an international lawyer, diplomat, writer, and activist, who is currently the executive director of UN Watch, a human rights NGO based in Geneva, Switzerland. In this role, he has often testified in defense of Israel and the Jewish people at the United Nations and in front of the United States Congress. Prior to joining UN Watch, Hillel practiced commercial and civil rights litigation, where he represented people such as Oprah Winfrey and other high profile individuals and corporations. Since 2009, Hillel has headed a coalition of 25 human rights groups as chair of the annual Geneva Summit for Human Rights and Democracy, a renowned international gathering that provides a global platform uh, to courageous pro-democracy dissidents from around the world who put their lives on the line to demand fundamental freedoms from oppressive regimes. Uh, McGill University has awarded Hillel with the honorary doctorate for his work to advance human rights and for being, as they said, a voice for those without one. Uh, his 2017 speech, Where Are Your Jews? before the United Nations Human Rights Council has been replicated in multiple languages across social media and seen by millions of people. You should certainly Google and check that out if you haven't seen it already. It is really, really compelling. Uh, we are honored to have Hillel with us today. Welcome, Hillel. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, just to get right into it, so time is short, and I know a lot of people have questions. Uh, the UN is sort of a nebulous and mythical entity for many. They see it as like this world's parliament. For people that don't know, just at a basic level, can you briefly outline the United Nations for us, its structure, and how it was set up? Um, Sure, it's a it's a I, lot. I'm giving us the I'll, brief version, essentially. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll do my best. I only get ninety seconds to speak at the UN, <laughs> and I and I do a lot of tweets, so I try to only speak in ninety second uh, bits. Um, the UN was created in 1945. It has a combination of idealism and realism. The idealism is expressed in the UN Charter, which was envisioned by uh, intellectuals or 
or um, a brain trust surrounding FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So the UN Charter itself is an expression of liberal internationalism. It speaks about fundamental freedoms for all, human dignity, international peace and security. So we like the United Nations Charter. We like the idea of the UN. That's the idealism. The realism is that you know they, they, the idea was <clears throat> that you'd get the great powers around the table um, who could prevent war. As Churchill said, better jaw jaw than war war. So Stalin was there at, from the beginning, right? The five permanent members of the Security Council include Russia and China, along with France, the US and the UK. So it, it is a combination of the idealism and the realism it wanted the great powers there. And the result, you know, some seven decades later is mixed. Um, the UN is a forum. And when great powers have the will to uh, do the right thing and, you know, stop a war, the UN can be the venue for it. But when great powers don't have that will, the UN is typically weak. Um, and the UN, sometimes the UN is a forum of nations. So there's the Security Council, 15 countries, five of whom have the veto, uh, as I mentioned them before, the US, China, France, the UK, and Russia. Um, there is the General Assembly, which is the World Parliament. That's 193 countries. There's no veto, so majority rules. And often it's a majority of dictatorships, so it's not real right. democracy because they don't really represent their people. They represent the regimes. And then other bodies like the Human Rights Council here in Geneva is a microcosm of the General Assembly. It's 53, sorry, it's 50, 47 countries, uh, but also one country, one vote. Um, and there, uh, ironically, paradoxically, though it's supposed to protect human rights, many of the world's worst regimes seek to join the council to prevent themselves right. and their allies from ever being condemned. So it's it's a, it's kind of a mix and the UN can work if enough countries uh, try to do the right thing, but often that does not happen. Right, right. And we'll get into a lot of that today. Um, just briefly, who funds the UN and how is it funded? You do. Most people <laughs> right. on this call or from the United States do. Um, the, the UN overwhelmingly, uh, right? I think yeah, the, the, States, the UN has a system funder. where they um, where they assess countries. The U.S. assessment is approximately twenty two percent, and that's by far the largest amount. Um, other countries are paying five percent, seven percent, ten percent. You know, it's the wealthy countries, and um, and it's not always very fair. Um, of course, with, with payment, you get some influence. So one hopes that the U.S. has some clout, though it's not always the case. Right. So the, the, the taxpayers pay, and there's an assessed contribution that goes into the general budget, and then there's voluntary sums. The United States and other countries voluntarily give additional money beyond that 22% to the U.N. Refugee Agency, to the Human Rights office and other bodies. So the United States in a given year might give, I'm not sure what the number is, but it's several billions of dollars to, to right. the UN. Right. So getting more focused on Israel, how on earth did the Jews in 1947 convince the world to establish a state of Israel? Um, and is there anything interesting around that vote that maybe you can share with us? It's a good question. Uh, look, the UN, and, and just to sharpen the question, you know, how is it that a United Nations, which can be relied upon now for at least five decades to condemn Israel in the words of Abba Iban, um, if, if Algeria introduced a resolution saying that the earth was flat and right. Israel was to blame, the vote would be 140 in favor, nine opposed and, you know, 12 abstained. Right. Um, and that's true. So how is it that a body like the General Assembly, which has such a strong 
automatic majority against Israel, uh, did find the numbers to endorse a Jewish state on 29 November 1947. And the answer in a nutshell is the UN membership was quite different. Uh, then it was about 50 countries, and many of them were Western type of countries, Western Europe, um, uh, Latin America, and so forth. The countries of Africa and Asia had not yet been decolonized. Uh, so that was, that was one element to it. Uh, the other piece is that Israel had not been created, and the, you know, we, we spoke in the title, Israel is the Jew among the nations, right. which is a quote that comes from the historian Talmon, and it's been used by various people, including my teacher, Professor Irwin Kotler, the former Justice Minister of Canada, that concept of Israel as a Jew among the nations took some time to develop in the world consciousness. In 1947, Israel was still something new, it didn't exist yet. And of course, there was the Holocaust. So it was two right. years after the Holocaust, there was a guilt on the part of many countries. Um, and there was a terrific lobbying campaign by uh, the Zionist movement and its friends and supporters from the Philippines, to Latin America and all around the world. And they did manage to get a majority uh, at that time. And unfortunately today, it's hard for Israel to get a majority. Uh, the anti-Israel automatic majority has very much cemented itself. Right, right. And I guess in 1947, you know, the, I guess the early founders of Israel, the early Zionists were very communist and socialist. So, or had those tendencies. So I guess the Soviet Union perhaps uh, wasn't fully against them at that time. And so I guess that brings me to my next question. No, which, no, but I want to, so I'm going to cut you off because I wanted to say, and I forgot to, is you did have a unique moment. Right. Just what you said was that, you know, from then on when the Cold War was already kicking in then, um, you know, the Soviet Union was against Israel and with it, you had enormous amount of communist countries. Well, all the communist countries voted with the Soviet Union as did many so-called later non-aligned countries which were influenced by the Soviet Union, you did have a unique moment. I don't think it was because of the socialistic aspect of Israel. It, they, didn't, they didn't like, Stalin didn't really care that much about the kibbutzim. Right. What they did want is to kick the British out. So you, you had a unique moment. Got it. And, and for the religiously inclined, it's a divine moment. Rabbi Soloveitchik of blessed memory, uh, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, if I'm not mistaken, in his essay on Kol Dodi Dufek, talks about how there was a, a divine moment where in the height of the Cold War, the US and the Soviet Union actually agreed. And in the words of Gromyko, the foreign minister, he actually made the case for Israel, which you know, a year later or two years later, already by the time Golda Meir came to Moscow, they, 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 and Jews came out to see her in the synagogue of Moscow, they, they shut that down and Soviet right. Union became very uh, anti-Zionist. So it was kind of a unique moment. And certainly the majority due to the communists countries being on board in the Soviet Union, that dissipated very quickly. Right. I guess in 1947, one area where British soldiers were still being killed was in then Mandate Palestine and by, you know, some of the Jewish forces. So I guess it made sense for them to think that perhaps there was a chance that they could uh, align with this new country. So when did this occur? When did, as you say, Jacob Talman said, you know, the Jew among the nations, when did this start occurring? I guess very shortly afterwards. And you know, why did it occur? Is just Israel aligned itself with the West, and and all of a sudden it became the ire of uh, you know all these other countries. Why did what occur? Why did Israel become this such a, a you know vilified nation at the United Nations? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think there's different pieces to it, and, and we can trace it till today. Um, so you know, then I'd say. You have a combination of 
realpolitik, uh, which everyone can understand, those are geopolitical interests. Um, and then you have things that are not rational, that are super rational, and that might deal more in the area of psychology, because what governments do is what people want them to do, and, and people are governed by psychology. So the geopolitical aspects are the following. Um, well, the, the Arab states you know, declared war on Israel from the beginning, right. um, and, and they wanted to destroy Israel, and they said so, and they took action to do so. They were supported by the Islamic State. So you, you, you quite quickly had an Arab-Islamic um, alliance against Israel built in from the very beginning. The, the Arab countries had declared jihad against Israel. And you had people like the Mufti, um, who was allied with Hitler and who right. was inciting Muslims during World War II using Nazi rhetoric. And that, that kicked in. So you had in the Arab Muslim world this enmity against Israel. Um, you then had the Soviet Union, because as you indicated, Israel um, did ally itself with the West. And indeed, it wasn't sure immediately how that would go. And there were some hardline kibbutzim that still had pictures of Stalin even after he died uh, hanging in the kibbutz. But Ben-Gurion was never a communist. He was never a Stalinist. He right. was a Zionist. And the communists were fiercely anti-Zionist. And they always were, starting from the 1920s. So that, that was clear. Um, so you had the Arab world against Israel. You had the Islamic world against Israel. You had the communist regimes against Israel. Um, and then you had, you know, the non-aligned movement, the countries, of, the new countries in Africa and Asia, that I'd say were influenced by different things. They were influenced by the Soviet Union. They were also influenced by um, the, the hard left. And I'll just, you know, this could be a long discussion, but I'll just mention one, one element is that, you know, I, I was just at a debate a few days ago here in Geneva at the Human Rights Council, where a UN expert said that Israel is apartheid. Right. And we're hearing that by certain human rights groups that belong to the far left. They, what in England was Jeremy Corbyn type people, uh, people like the mayor of London, uh, Red Ken, who said Hitler was a Zionist. These are right. the same people. It, Red Ken, Ken Livingstone, who said Hitler was a Zionist, is a friend of Jeremy Corbyn. And his wife, Ken Livingstone's wife, for 20 years was Kate Allen, who was the head of Amnesty International in London. Wow. That's the organization that just said Israel's apartheid right. as well. So these are the same sociologically, the same people, right. ideologically, the same people as a hard left. And they were influenced by certain ideas. Some of it was the Soviet Union had an incitement disinformation campaign of Zionism as racism going back to the 1950s, right. which ultimately influenced the UN. It influenced the world. You had someone named, named uh, Professor Toynbee, Arnold Toynbee, who as early as the 1950s was saying that Israel had committed war crimes in 1948 and that Israel acted like the Nazis. There's a famous debate with Ambassador Yaakov Herzog, who was the, uh, the uncle of the current president, Yitzhak Herzog. His, his father was Chaim Herzog, the president of Israel. His uncle was Yaakov Herzog, who was, was Israeli ambassador to Canada. And he famously had a debate with Toynbee in in my hometown, Montreal, McGill University in 1961. And he, he debated Toynbee on two things. Toynbee was the great historian at the time in the world. And he had said, number one, the Jews were a fossil people, that they had, wow. they had not been alive for 2000 people, for 2000 years, right. uh, they were a fossil. Um, and Herzog confronted him on that and talked about the Jewish contributions to uh, culture throughout history. Including, right, throughout the world. You know, the Mishnah and the Talmud 
right. and Maimonides and many other things during the time that he said that Jews were a fossil. Uh, but the other thing that he debated, that Herzog debated, Toynbee, was his statement that the Israelis were like the Nazis. So this isn't Amnesty International of 2022 or the 1980s. Uh, this is 1950s. Already you had certain people who were not positively inclined towards the Jews, who were who had this inversion. Um, so, so I would say, in addition to the geopolitical aspects, you have uh, a hostility to Jews, which is uh, part of Western civilization going back a thousand, two thousand years, and it began to express itself. Um, you know, the Holocaust made the conventional anti-Semitism of the time uh, impolite. You know, in the 1930s, right. you could say, I don't like Jews, they're pushy, they're right. this or that. You could say that in polite company, you could have quotas against Jews, you had it in America, we had right. it in Canada, where I grew up, and anti-Semitism was acceptable in polite company. After right. the Holocaust, it wasn't very acceptable, it still existed, but it wasn't very acceptable, but suddenly it, it you know, mutated, and it was right. acceptable to say, ah, the Jews are acting like Nazis. Whatever the Nazis did, the Nazis are occupiers, the Jewish right. state is, the Nazis are racist, the Jewish state is, the Nazis committed genocide, right. the Jewish state is. So whatever you wanted to say, you could attach it to Israel. So in addition to the geopolitical aspects, you had this new anti-Semitism, which mutated into uh, demonizing Israel. Israel. Right. I guess it's like Dara Horn says, people love dead Jews, that they, they didn't mind remembering the Holocaust, but the actual living Jews, uh, they were still hostile towards. So just to talk about some of the more infamous anti-Israel moments of the UN. And then there's just a couple I want to go through. The first being Yasser Arafat's speech at the UN in 1974 um, that some had dubbed for some reason the Olive Branch speech, which was anything but. Um, and this is when the PLO was granted permanent observer status. Can you just discuss a little bit about that speech and what it was really about and why the PLO was granted this special status? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really testing you today. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. It, it, there's just a lot to unpack there. Right. We, we have to talk about the PLO, which is that, um, uh, you know, you mentioned 29 November 1947, which is when, which is when, uh, when the United Nations General Assembly voted for a Jewish state and an Arab state in the right. former Palestine mandate. The Jews celebrated and danced and endorsed it, and the Arabs went declared war. Um, during that time, uh, the, the territories that were supposed to go to the Arab state were occupied by Jordan, uh, Judea and Samaria, uh, which later became known as the West Bank. Um, in the 1947 resolution, they're described as Judea and Samaria in the United Nations uh, document. Uh, that's been forgotten. Um, right. the, uh, the Jordan occupied those territories and the PLO, as it began to be created by the Arab states in the early 1960s, was about liberating not those territories occupied by Jordan, but ending confronting Israel. Right. After the Six Day War, suddenly there became this new attention to Judea and Samaria or the West Bank. And suddenly that became, and Gaza, which was occupied by Egypt. Suddenly these were now under Israeli control. And suddenly this became the narrative, which is that Israel is the occupier of these territories, which Jordan and Egypt had occupied before. And no one had cared much about it. So the PLO suddenly was, was given new force um, and, and certainly elevated the, the import of that moment. Uh, Arafat says, you know, I, I'm, I'm bringing the olive branch, but I also have the gun. He, he had a holster with him. They wanted to bring a gun. He didn't bring the gun. They wouldn't let him, but he had the holster. And he said, you know, if, I, I want to do peace, but if you don't, then I'm going to, you know, use the gun. This is at a time when uh, his organization was uh, inventing modern terrorism as we know it. 
including plane hijackings one after the other, the massacre in Munich, these were organizations uh, part or affiliated with Yasser Arafat. So uh, he was legitimized by the UN in 1974, around the time that in Europe, he was being legitimized as well, including by an infamous Jewish head of state, who um, was the chancellor of uh, Austria, um, uh, uh, Bruno Kreisky. Uh, he embraced Arafat and he was Jewish, kind of a self-hating Jew, and he made embracing Arafat an acceptable thing to do in Europe at that time. And so, and then obviously a year later in 1975, so a year after Arafat's, you know, olive branch speech, um, we had resolution 3379, where they determined that Zionism is a form of racism and racial discrimination. Um, so apparently that was the, the olive branch Arafat was referring to. Can you discuss just a little bit about that vote and how it came about? Yes, that is a, an infamous day at the UN. Uh, um, it came about through, through many factors. One, as I mentioned, was the Soviet Union had uh, embarked upon a massive campaign to um, describe Zionism as racism, and they would use uh, anti-Semitic, classical anti-Semitic motifs. There were hundreds of books, thousands of articles. There were daily cartoons. These were pumped out in 80 different languages around the world and they influenced many people, including particularly the, the left that was sympathetic to socialism and communism at that time before everyone knew what Stalin was up to. And so they did uh, poison uh, a lot of uh, left-wing discourse around the world. So that's one element. They were also poisoning the discourse in the third world as it was then called in Africa and Asia. And, and the Soviet Union is considered to be very much a part of that resolution, very much behind it together with the Arab states. The Arab states had failed to defeat Israel in the battlefield in 1948, 56, 73, sorry, 67, 73. But suddenly by the late sixties, they realized the United Nations was a very friendly um, uh, battlefield for them, not a military battlefield, a diplomatic battlefield. They discovered they had an automatic majority with the Soviet Union and the communist states. Uh, the Arab states and with the non, so-called non-aligned countries from Africa and Asia. And so they began to bring one resolution after another. And it began at, a, they started at first at a women's, uh, a women's conference in Mexico City, Zionism is racism. And then people didn't really understand what was going on. And then it came to New York. Uh, the United States ambassador, Patrick Moynihan made a valiant stand, gave one of the greatest speeches in the history of the United Nations. If someone's interested, you could find it. Uh, on YouTube or on our website, unwatch.org. Uh, Chaim Herzog, the Israeli ambassador, who's the father of the current uh, president of Israel, also gave a historic speech also worth reading. And the General Assembly passed it by a majority. Um, and I'll just say this, which is that in 1975, when that resolution was adopted, um, uh, Patrick Moynihan said, uh, the United States rises to declare that we, that uh, it, it does not, um, it does not acknowledge and it, it will uh, it will never acquiesce to this infamous act. Right. I'm paraphrasing. And it, in, in most influential areas of society, that was considered a terrible act and it was considered an anti-Semitic act um, and sort of stayed in the UN. And sadly today, those same ideas have revived themselves and right. have permeated through many other um, uh, many other sectors that would once have uh, rejected those ideas. 
Right. And just to go back to my previous question, the PLO, so they were granted this special status. Like, what is what is that grant them? And there are other countries or not countries, obviously, are there are other entities that have this special status. Or is this really like given the, the Palestinians because they're anti-Israel, something that other entities, I don't know if it was the Kurds or, you know, other disenfranchised uh, or like groups and ethnicities didn't have. I'm not aware of any other, you know, um, uh, national entity that uh, or national organization that received observer status at the UN. Uh, there was the Vatican, uh, which had it. So there was the Vatican and the PLO. I said, you know, Switzerland was an observer until about 20 years ago when they came a member. Um, but but if you're referring to, you know, the Kurds and the Uyghurs and, right. and the Basques and all that, none of them have that. So it's it's you just had this massive automatic majority and right. just a handful of countries opposed. And so they just were able to ram it through and no one had any interest in promoting any other uh, national minority or what have you. So right. the PLO- They were unfortunately, to... unfortunate, unfortunate for them, they weren't battling the Jewish uh, state for the Kurds that, or that for correct. the Uyghurs yeah. so or the, other, the, other the, uh, the minorities. The PLO had observer status. And then around 2012, the United Nations voted to recognize them as a state. They're a non-member state, meaning they don't get right. to vote. They're not one of the hundred, but they are called a state and that had uh, consequences for the International Criminal Court, uh, which said since they're a state, the UN says they're a state, then they can have jurisdiction and they can sort of sue Israel. Um, so it's kind of, you, you kind of have a, a, a very comfortable situation for the Palestinians where um, when they want to prosecute Israel, they're a state. But if you ever want to hold them accountable for anything, um, you know, why don't they vaccinate their own people? It's like, no, no, right. we have nothing. We're, we're just occupied. We're, we're nobody. We're powerless. Um, right. But if, if they want jurisdiction to go after Israel, then, you know, they have their estate and it's called the state of Palestine. So and on one day or another, right. um, and certain advocacy groups will emphasize how significant their um, powers are. And then other times they'll uh, uh, claim that they have such weak uh, power. Right. All the benefits with none of the burdens. Right. right. I, exactly. I guess that's really the way it is. So exactly. so the next mo really infamous um, infamous event against Israel, the anti-Israel movement, was in 2001, the United Nations organized the Durban Conference that was supposed to be an anti-racist forum, which then devolved into a forum of hate against Israel, causing Israel and America to walk out. Um, and this was also really the first time that Israel was labeled an apartheid state in, in, in any sort of formal setting. Can you briefly discuss this conference and you know how was this even allowed to happen? How was a conference that was supposed to be anti-racist from an organization America you know, heavily funds allowed to take place? Well, you're, you're really walking us through the hall of horrors here. Right. Well, we, 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 I mean, I'll just tell the audience, we didn't coordinate. I had no idea what he was going to ask me. He said, I was just asking questions and it's right. fine. You're asking about very important things. That's why I take a moment to think. Then I speak quickly, but I take a moment to think. Um, right. So you're really going through a lot of the horrors and it's fine. It's it's getting very depressing. We're going to have Unfortunately, to- Unfortunately, I have some more horrors ahead. Um, I, I, I don't doubt it. And well, maybe a happy moment or two. I, I will try. I will try. Maybe someone will ask at the end of this to, to give some of the uh, more optimistic angle to things. Um, but uh, 2001 was indeed a terrible moment. And it, it was indeed where we felt that Zionism as racism 
was revived in some form because Zionism was racism to give the positive part was repealed in 1991 in December, just as the Soviet Union was dissolving and that wasn't accidental, the, the UN actually General Assembly rescinded the Zionism as racism resolution, which was great. Sadly, it still lives on. And, and the most famous example you gave is 2001, there was a world conference against racism. This was in post-apartheid South Africa. It was supposed to be a wonderful event. And um, two things happened. One was there was the conference of governments, and then there was a parallel event was the non-governmental organizations had a sort of side parallel conference. So in the governmental conference, which was the main one, the terrible thing that happened there was the declaration they adopted, which is hundreds of pages, included a short part, but nevertheless a part, when it listed victims of racism, the only group listed were the Palestinians. So by implication, Israel was the only country uh, called out for being a effectively committing the act of racism. Those weren't the words, but the Palestinians were listed as the only victims of racism. That was in the governmental declaration. And that's why, that's why we object to that declaration to this day. But the second more pernicious part was the, the non-governmental organizations um, called Israel an apartheid state and accused it of genocide and, and sort of they threw the entire kitchen sink at it. And, and I, maybe some of us were naive. I guess Gerald Steinberg of NGO Monitor was not because he said that's the NGO declaration is, is their strategy. And indeed, you know, I'm sure you're fast forwarding to that, but you know, today that's what major NGOs, Amnesty and Human Rights Watch, who in Durban said, well, we didn't really go along with it. Why didn't you condemn it? Well, we, we, we tried to, but we didn't really. They kind of distanced themselves at the times from that. And today they're adopting the same rhetoric. So that's what happened in the non-governmental declaration where Israel was declared these terrible things. And then on the streets of South Africa, there were thousands of people who marched, primarily Muslims who were organized by, it was the time of the second intifada. So they were organized in these huge marches where they said Zionism is racism. Hitler was correct. Hitler was right. And uh, so those things happened on the streets of Durban and at the non-governmental forum. And, and so that, I guess, brings us um, to this, this final thing I just want to discuss of sort of like infamous anti-Israel moments, which is the United Nations Special Rapporteurs on the situation of human rights in the Palestinian territories. So there's been John Dugard, Richard Falk, we just had Michael Link, and all three have been extremely anti-Israel. All have called Israel an apartheid state um, and essentially releasing the same report at the end of their terms. What are they supposed to be doing and who assigns them? And I guess, uh, who's the new one? And is it just gonna be more of the same? Yes, so there is a position at the Human Rights Council. The Human Rights Council is a body of 47 governments and they appoint experts, monitors, to cover either countries or themes. And uh, among the themes, there are about um, 40 or so experts who cover women's rights, torture, freedom of speech, etc. And then you have about a dozen that cover countries, uh, meaning only about a dozen countries are monitored. There's a, there's a monitor on North Korea, on Sudan, on, um, on Somalia, and on the Palestinian territories. All right, you and I could argue on whether there of only 12 places in the world, Palestinian territories should be a place to be monitored. But if there's a monitor there, then fine, you know, let, let the monitor speak out for uh, violations that Israel may do, Palestinian Authority, Hamas, Islamic Jihad. Let the special rapporteur on, the, on human rights in the Palestinian territories 
speak out for human rights. Right. The reality though, is that the mandate doesn't say that. That's the title, the mandate from February, 1993, meaning before the Oslo process, before Hamas took over Gaza, before the PA controlled Bethlehem and Ramallah and et cetera, et cetera, they weren't there. They didn't have any ruling authority. Um, so, but the mandate is to look only at Israel and it's called to investigate, quote, Israel's violations. So the right. mandate of the special rapporteur is to investigate Israel's violations. So, so anyone who applies for the job is kind of saying, well, we like biased mandates to condemn only Israel. Right. So there's uh, nothing to say investigate Hamas, investigate the, the Palestinian Authority, nothing about, you know, not, not the whole situation, just one side of the situation. No, the, the title purports to be fair. Special right. rapporteur on the human rights situation in Palestinian territories. That's the title. But right. the reality of what the mandate is and what the person does is only to go after Israel. And if the mandate holder, you mentioned several of them, if they wanted to, they could say, well, I was given the mandate to do this, but the only way I can speak about what Israel did is if I also give the context. And the context is that Hamas right. fired 4,000 rockets at Israeli cities in May. The context is that in the past seven days in Israel, there have been three terrorist attacks by people affiliated with ISIS, killed 11 Jews, Arabs, and Ukrainians. This is the context, and I have to mention it as well. And various UN mandate holders over the years and other positions found ways, even if given a restricted mandate, to bring in the context and to even things out. But what happens is, is that uh, you ask the question quite correctly, who chooses this right. person? So I don't want to get into too much inside baseball, but there's a committee of five governments that is a vetting committee, and they recommend someone, and then the chair of the council chooses, the chair of the Human Rights Council chooses, but with the consent of all the countries. So the majority ends up deciding. So I'll give you an interesting story. About, um, I wanna say maybe eight years ago, maybe it's 2014, the vetting committee exceptionally was made up of some good countries. Canada was head of the vetting committee. It's called the consultative group. And the Canadian ambassador said, um, for the Palestine mandate, it's once every six years, Right. We think we should pick someone who actually has no record of bias, right. um, something radical, and actually okay. is someone who could build bridges with both sides, be a positive force for peace in the region, and has no prior record on these issues. We therefore nominate Christina Serna, a human rights advocate in Washington, D.C., who worked for the Organization of American States. We looked at her CV, couldn't find anything about Israel, not against, not for Palestine, nothing. She was dealing with Latin America, other issues. She was an international human rights expert, could have done a perfectly good job. She was recommended, given the number one priority. The Arab states went nuts. They wrote a letter to the president of the Human Rights Council that said, don't you dare choose this number one ranked person. She has no experience. She has no expertise. Wow. When they say expertise, they mean someone who follows our line. Right. So she got nixed, even though she was the number one ranked by the vetting committee, the chairman came under the pressure of the Arab Islamic states and all the majorities that they wield. And he ended up picking someone who was an easy choice. The former Indonesian ambassador, he ended up resigning and they put Michael Link. And right. since then the vetting committees are not even as good. They don't even put up a fight. Michael Link is viciously anti-Israel. He was an anti-Israel advocate his whole life. He had the job for six years. Of course he condemned Israel's apartheid because 10 years ago in, America, in Canada, when he was a professor there, he was part of Israel Apartheid Week. That's why the Palestinians picked him. Right. Uh, on Friday, they're going to pick a replacement. And the number one choice is an Italian lawyer 
named Francesca Albanese. She used to work for UNRWA, the UN Agency oh, for Palestinians. And yeah. she routinely compares Israel to the Nazis oh. using the Holocaust inversion. She accuses Israel of apartheid, genocide, and all the rest. And so, that's so in why six they years, her. we're going to get the same report that Michael Link just reached uh, or released this last week that Israel is a genocidal apartheid state and nothing more. So that actually brings me, you always are great at tweeting out you know, staking on the Human Rights Council for a moment, like all the members of it, and the members are Eritrea, Libya, Sudan, China, Pakistan, Qatar, Russia, Venezuela, Cuba, you know, the great human rights uh, champions of the world. Like, what was the Human Rights Council set up to do? And what does it actually do? Does it do anything? The Human Rights Council is, as I said, it's 47 countries. They meet three times a year for one month sessions. Uh, they adopt resolutions. Um, the council is only as good as its members. You listed many of their dominant members. Right. The dictatorships comprise today 68.1% are either dictatorships or other non-democracies. You have 32% that are democracies. The United States just joined, the UK, France, Germany, the Netherlands, and others. So there are democracies there, but currently they're, they're in the minority. And um, sometimes they're able to put forward a resolution on North Korea or Myanmar, which does something good by spotlighting abuses in a terrible country. Um, but too often they turn a blind eye to the world's worst abusers because they're sitting on the council or their allies are sitting on the council. So the vast majority of the world's worst abusers never get condemned. Um, and often they pass resolutions that are kind of disinformation, things that people are not sensitive to. Maybe now they are. People were asking me, why is it that some Western countries vote against a resolution condemning Nazism? How could the United States or maybe even Israel abstain? And what is going on there? Well, now you know Putin for at least 20 years has had a propaganda campaign, the KGB, to describe all of Russia's um, you know, rivals or countries that they want to conquer as Nazi countries. That's their thing. And so that what, what we all know now that they're, fight, they're attacking Ukraine to denazify Ukraine. Right. Putin has been saying that about all of its allies, Lithuania, Estonia, Ukraine, et cetera, which fits into their World War II rhetoric, which right. was not all a lie. The Soviet Union fought the Nazis. The Nazis did have supporters in many of these countries. But anyway, the annual resolution that's adopted in New York on Nazism is put forward by Putin, and it's not against real Nazism, it's against his enemies. Right. So I just give that wow. as an example of many resolutions that are Orwellian, that are twisted. There's a resolution on the right to peace that's brought by Syria, okay? There are many human rights resolutions brought by China, Cuba, um, Pakistan, in introduced many resolutions. So what does the Human Rights Council do? Some good things, many bad things, a lot of demonizing of Israel. Right, so you know, the UN is, this, this council has condemned Israel something like 90 times since it was formed. And I think the next closest is North Korea with something around like 12 or 13 times. And there's this uh, standing agenda seven item. Can you just explain what that is? Cause I know a lot of people always hear about this standing agenda seven item, but don't really know what that, that represents. Sure, here in Geneva at the Human Rights Council, the council meets a month, er, uh, three times a year for a month in September, March, and June. They're meeting now and about to end on Friday, a month long session. And throughout that session, they follow the same agenda. There's 10 agenda items. Um, item one is like organization of the session. Item two is report of the high commissioner. Item three, 
civil and political rights. Item four, human rights situations around the world. Item six, universal periodic review. Item seven, human rights violations in Palestine and other occupied Arab territories. So you have one agenda item for human rights situations around the world. If you want to talk about 193 countries, what they're doing, you could do that during the day that they debate item four. And then there's a day where they debate item seven, which is Israeli violations. So one day for the whole world and one day wow. for Israel alone. No other country in the world, not even Iran, North Korea, Syria, right. Russia has its own agenda item, only Israel. Right, right. And you know, the, I guess the General Assembly, this happens there too. Every year, in addition to the Human Rights Council, we always get, you know, 13, 14 resolutions condemning Israel and maybe one condemning Iran or Syria. Like, what are the substance of these General Assembly resolutions? Are there any standing ones or is it every year they just come up with a couple, you know, 15 new ones to condemn Israel? You know, that's a great question. But I'm going to ask you to hold that thought because I've been speaking so much. I run out of water. Okay. So play elevator music for our people in California and I'll be right back in a second with some water. Right. Oh, you're back. I was going I was to maybe afraid, see if I could... I was afraid that when I came back, you were going to say everybody hide. No, no, everybody I was going to actually maybe play. I was going to get your clip where you, no, the, where are your water, I, I didn't give oh, you the time. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, all right. So, so. You're asking about the GA where there's right. one resolution on Iran, one on Syria, one on North Korea. Like what, and every and year. Or 15 on Israel. Right. Every year. There, what, what are those resolutions every year? And. Are they the same resolutions or is every year someone comes up with 15 resolutions just for Israel? Um, they're typically the same. Yeah. They're annual resolutions. Um, there's a custom at the UN to adopt annual resolutions on various subjects. So there'll be resolutions that do the following. Condemn Israel for being on the Golan Heights and calling for it to give it back to Syria. Uh, even though Syria used the Heights to attack Israel and is currently a genocidal regime that if they had the heights, they would probably be killing the people living there, whether they were Arabs or Jews. Um, and that's why Israel is not planning to give it to Syria anytime soon. Um, but there's two resolutions calling on Israel to give the Golan to Syria. There are several resolutions about UNRWA, the UN agency dedicated only to Palestinian so-called refugees. Um, there's about three resolutions on them. There are resolutions condemning Israel for human rights violations. There are resolutions calling for Palestinian self-determination even though, as you already indicated, Palestinians are the only ones who have a special status at the UN of right. being recognized as a state where you should have a resolution on self-determination of the Kurds and the Basques and all kinds of others. There is none, it's only the Palestinians. Um, and uh, there's resolutions saying that the UN needs to um, promote the Palestine information program, which is sort of pro-PLO propaganda. There's a resolution uh, creating the Committee on Inalienable Rights of the Palestinian People. Um, which is a committee that condemns Israel. So those are some of the resolutions. So every year, the, the Tibetans don't get anything, the Yurgers don't get anything, the, the Kurds, it's just one after Zero. the other Israel. Zero. Right. So with the signing of the Abraham Accords and warming... And I just want to say something. So I want to say something. People should understand it's not a small thing. I mean, you just said, for example, you know, the Uyghurs get zero. Right. Um, if there were to be one resolution on a country, whether it's on China or whether it's on Pakistan, it's a big deal, okay? Right. Countries do enormous campaigning and diplomatic day marches 
And to get a resolution passed is a very big deal. And each resolution takes up a lot of time in foreign ministries to review them and decide how they're doing. The fact that you have more than one on Israel is weird. It's almost nuts. The fact that you have 15 is bonkers. If someone right. said, I'm going to do 15 resolutions on Russia, the Americans would say, what are you driving us crazy with 15? Put it right. in one text. Put it in two if you must. But no one would countenance having 15. But on Israel, people just go along. So it's like the anti-Semitism has been desensitized. It's like so commonplace that Israel is called out and is just, I know you don't like me saying it, but I think Yossi Klein Alevi was said it was like the Jewish state has become the Jew of the state. I mean, it's just singled out as like the Jew, essentially, at the UN. But with the Abraham Accords, that's what I was going to talk about, you know, and the warming relations with countries in Eastern Europe, um, and even like Brazil and India, is there any end in sight to this and Israel being condemned? Uh, do we have, this is the hopeful, is there anything, reason that we can maybe be hopeful um, that uh, this will change? But, you know, for instance, just past December, there was a resolution, I think it was like 129 to 11, that disavowed Jewish ties to the Temple Mount. So I guess we shouldn't hold our breath, but is there any hope on the horizon here for it? Uh, in terms of changing votes, there can be some hope because um, governments change. And, you know, Canada is an example. About 20 years ago, the Canadian government was ruled by Jean Chrétien. And Canada at the time typically went along with Europe and voted for many of the anti-Israel resolutions and abstained on a handful. Um, under the leadership of first Canadian Prime Minister uh, Paul Martin, that began to change and Canada became more supportive of Israel. And then under Prime Minister Stephen Harper, that accelerated quite rapidly. And by the end of Stephen Harper's tenure in 2015, Canada was voting no on basically every resolution the way that the United States does. So that was a significant change. Here in Geneva, the government of Theresa May and Boris Johnson said, if the Human Rights Council doesn't end its singling out of Israel through agenda item seven, they will vote no on every resolution. And they began to change their votes and began to vote no on resolutions brought under item seven. All right. The, the Palestinians ended a trick, probably in cahoots with the British Foreign Office, where they began to move some resolutions to a generic agenda item. So the British only promised to vote no if it was under agenda item seven, but if it was moved to a generic agenda item, the same awful one-sided text, the British government could abstain or vote for it. So that's a caveat. But in my experience, countries can change their votes. Um, Germany, Czech Republic recently changed their votes on one resolution. And these are all indications, you know, the 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 PLO and Hamas, they look at the numbers. And, right. and if you, the numbers start to change, that's a way of feeling where things are going. It's a statement to the world on how much public support Israel has. And uh, these things can, can change. And though the numbers are stacked against Israel, um, it's, uh, it's not a lost cause. And certainly, I'm sure someone's gonna get to it eventually, but we see with the Abraham Accords that geopolitics can change. Right. Um, United Arab Emirates this morning tweeted, we condemn the terrorist attack in Israel. Okay, and they went on. <clears throat> Human Rights Watch, the head of Human Rights Watch in New York, Ken Roth, made a tweet about this sort of cold, kind of journalistic tweet about what happened, no condemnation. So the United Arab Emirates today is condemning a terrorist attack that Human Rights Watch won't condemn. And you saw, like everyone on this call saw a few days ago, you had Egypt, Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, um, am I missing one? I don't think so. And Tony Blinken, Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, were in Israel, which was a historic summit. Today, President, uh, Yaakov, uh, President Isaac Herzog was in Amman meeting the King of Jordan. 
So you have very significant geopolitical changes in the region. They haven't yet really reached the UN, but you know, uh, the Arabs got their votes in large part because of oil. Who knows if Israel's you know, gas uh, reserves increase, maybe some right. countries will begin voting for Israel because uh, they want Israel's oil and gas like they did it for the Arabs, who knows? Right. And have we seen any shift in votes from the United Arab Emirates or Bahrain? No, no it hasn't reached the, it, not really. Some minor exceptions. There was a vote last year where Bahrain absented itself. That seemed okay. to be deli- that seemed to be deliberate and kind of like an abstention, um, which would be a change from voting yes. Um, but otherwise, the votes have been the same. And I wouldn't expect the votes to change because if you were the Emirates, you could say, you know, what do you want from us? You know, we're embracing Israel bilaterally, but at the UN, you know, all the countries, virtually all, even countries like Singapore that have had great relations with Israel for many years, they vote against Israel. That's the norm. Right. You want us to be, you know, we're an Arab Islamic country. You want us to be more pro-Israel than right. 90% of the countries with whom Israel even has, you know, good relations. So right. it's, it's the UN may be the last place that we'll see. Uh, right. It's all real politic and geopolitical other uh, issues at play. You know, Israel had, I remember maybe it was 2019, there was one sort of outlier, a special rapporteur, Ahmed Shahid, who is Muslim and from the Maldives. He released a report linking BDS to anti-Semitism and recognized the IRA working definition as something positive to fight anti-Semitism. How on earth was he able to release some positive report? And uh, is there anybody else like him at the United Nations? Yeah, glad for glad that you mentioned that. Ahmed Shahid was a UN expert. He, uh, first, a word about him: he he was the foreign minister of the Maldives um, when the Maldives became democratic. Uh, when they actually, it's, a, it's an Islamic country, um, and they actually began to shift their position in a more favorable way towards Israel. He was foreign minister at the time, and then there was a coup d'état, and he fled, and then he went to England. He's a professor there, and he was UN special rapporteur in Iran, where he did good things. Um, and, uh, and then he became special rapporteur on freedom of religion, where, as you indicated, he's issued some good reports on anti-Semitism. Um, I, you know, he's exceptional. Um, and uh, I don't know enough about him personally. We've met a few times, but he's clearly an exceptional individual who's trying to do the right thing. Um, and it's very courageous on his part. And I'm sure that he will be punished. His career will be punished as a, as a result, and it's unlikely that he's going to get other UN positions that uh, would be available if he did go against Israel. Right. And then later this year, two UN bodies are going to join the, the apartheid call, right? So there's, um, you know, I think we saw 68 senators, both Republicans and Democrats, sign onto a letter urging uh, Secretary of State Blinken to sort of shut down this commission of inquiry. Can you just speak a little bit about these two different bodies, like what are this commission of inquiry? And I believe there's one on the elimination of racial discrimination, right? C-R-E-R-D, that's also gonna release a report on Israel this year, correct? I'll say a word on, 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 the, on the racism committee and then the other one. So th- there, is a, there are uh, treaty bodies here in Geneva, which are bodies that enforce human rights treaties. And there's an anti-racism convention, which uh, the founder of my organization, of our organization of UN Watch. His name is Morris Abram. He passed away 20 years ago, was a great American civil rights leader. And he helped draft the UN convention on the elimination of racial discrimination. So that's a good anti-racism treaty. There are 18 experts, independent experts who enforce that treaty. 
And they've been asked by the Palestinians to sort of condemn Israel as a racist country, as kind of an right. apartheid country. So there's a formal mechanism that's quite rarely used, kind of one country suing another at the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, known as the CERD. CERD. So there is a kind of a kind of a lawsuit of Palestinians against Israel, like some kind of a dispute uh, process taking place there. And um, it seems that the committee is not very favorable to Israel. There was a there was a split decision on whether they had jurisdiction. The the UN legal office in New York <clears throat> ruled that, well, gave an opinion that the CERD did not have jurisdiction because for various reasons. And uh, but the experts ignored it, and the majority not not. Not everyone, but <clears throat> there was a split. But the majority said they had jurisdiction, and that's probably the same majority that's going to rule against Israel. So that will be a ruling. It's not binding, as far as I know, um, but it will not be a very nice thing if they declare Israel a racist country. Um, apart from that, there is a commission of inquiry that was created. That's that was that was created uh, by the Human Rights Council. Uh, it's a lot of terminology for people. But in May, there was a war last year between Hamas and Israel. Hamas fired 4,000 rockets at Israeli cities and Israel uh, fired back to stop the rockets and was quite effective at doing so and at, at avoiding civilian casualties um, in, in a rather significant degree. Uh, nevertheless, the Human Rights Council, as they always do, convened an urgent session, condemned Israel and created a commission of inquiry targeting Israel, which has two elements. One is to investigate the war where they're going to say Israel committed war crimes. Right. The second part is something very new. They're going to investigate, quote, systematic discrimination in Israel and the territories. What does that mean? Well, if you have any questions, just look at who they appointed. They appointed three people. The head of it, they appointed as Navi Pillay. Navi Pillay seems experienced. She was the head of the UN Human Rights Office. She was the High Commissioner for Human Rights. But in fact, Navi Pillay has a uh, record of ardent anti-Israel advocacy. In fact, she lobbies against Israel. Two years ago, she signed a manifesto which reads, quote, sanction apartheid Israel. She urged governments to sanction apartheid Israel. Um, she calls to boycott Israel. She's right. the head. She's the impartial head of this inquiry. It's astonishing and it's insulting. Uh, we, we filed a motion saying that she must recuse herself because of her prior statements and because she's lobbying against Israel and she's the judge. So they're going to report in June. And I think you can be quite certain that this commission of inquiry will conclude that Israel is an apartheid state, citing reports that have been published in the past year by Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, B'Tselem, and as of Friday uh, last, the UN Special Rapporteur on Palestine, Michael Link. And so this commission of inquiry, though, it's ongoing, indefinite, unlimited funding. You know, is this, this is like unprecedented in the United Nations, right? This is a brand new thing to have something like this. Um, it may be. I, there may be one other inquiry that has something like that. I'm not sure. Right. But um, it's certainly exceptional. Most mandates uh, last, you issue a report and the commission ends. Right. This one, as you indicated, goes on every year. They report in the Human Rights Council in June, they'll report in the General Assembly in September, and it's every year, it has millions of dollars. So it is certainly something quite extraordinary. Right, before we go to some audience questions, I just wanna to touch on one more thing because the Human Rights Council isn't the only, only body. We have UNESCO, which adopts around 10 anti-Israel resolutions uh, every year. 
Um, we have the World Health Organization, which you would think should not have anything to do with Israel, but somehow singles out Israel from condemnation. We have the International Labor Organization, which is uh, established to improve conditions of labor. Um, and it has an annual conference which singles out Israel. Like, so, so, so what are some of the things that they're singling out Israel for? And, um, you know, what are these bodies? Just another, another entity? And, and why are they taking up Israel, all of these, 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 these councils? Before I answer, I just want to know what is your time frame? Uh, what, what, um, how we did your time? Yeah, let's we'll, let's wrap it wrap it up. Maybe you'll take one audience question after this. So I guess brief. If you can go on for a couple more minutes, you don't have to run. Maybe we'll hit some of these. Yeah, also I'm going to pause. Those are good questions you asked. I, the short answer is more or less the same kinds mm -hmm. of things that are adopted. The World Health accuses Israel of violating Palestinian health. UNESCO accuses Israel of stealing Palestinian heritage sites like Jerusalem and Hebron, which they claim are Palestinian and so forth, so. Okay, um, and if, yeah, let's just maybe ask you a couple real quick ones that you can hit on. One is, what, what can we do? Like, what can be done? What can people in the entertainment community do uh, to help counter this stuff? Obviously support organizations such as yourselves, but is there anything else that we could do? Well, uh, there's a lot that people can do. The first thing is to get informed and you can do so in various ways. One, you're all invited to go on our website, unwatch.org, and to sign up to our newsletter. Uh, all the things that I described, we give regular updates once a week, twice a week. Um, and you can follow us on social media. If you're on Facebook, you can follow UNWatch or Hillel Neuer, the same on Twitter, Instagram. And that's the best way to get informed. And the next thing is you can campaign on many of the things that I described. Um, we have petitions and, and they matter. If, if a Congress person uh, gets uh, hundreds and thousands of, of emails about a certain terrible thing happening at the UN, they will care. Uh, same with, you know, a Secretary of State and others around the world. So um, it's actually very important. I'd say many of the people on this call, if they're not outraged and if they're not taking action, if they're not objecting to these things, nobody will. So if we, if we want the Secretary of State to be doing something in America or Foreign Minister of the UK or Canada, if, if, if people who care strongly about these issues are not speaking out, are not tweeting about it, and are not writing to their member of parliament, um, are not writing letters to the editor, are not writing op-eds, speaking out in all the ways that they can, um, then nobody else will. So I, I think that, as I said, I gave examples, um, Canada changed their votes, the UK changed their votes, on some things Germany changed their votes. 38 countries, there was Durban 4, a commemoration of the Durban conference was held in September, uh, 20 years from Durban and 38 countries pulled out. We never had that before. So that is a product of people, organizations uh, speaking out and taking a stand. So I think, as I said, uh, people need to be informed um, and, uh, and then need to take action. Okay, and then just one last uh, Just one. To give, an, give an example, if, um, you know, I'll, I'll drop it into the Q&A here. We have a petition on Avi Pillay um, and saying that she needs to step down as head of the Commission of Inquiry. Uh, and that's certainly something that people can sign. I'm just going to drop that into the uh, chat box. Here. Right. And someone said here, it's unwatch.org, not.com, unwatch.org. Um, one last question, and then we'll wrap it up, because I've seen this come up a bunch as well, is isn't it true that Israel is the only country that cannot sit on the UN Security Council? Um. It, it never has. Is it true that it can never can because it's not part of some sort of regional group? That is a good question. It was once the case. Um, let me just drop in petition. 
So I drop that into the chat to everyone. Um, and um, I'm just gonna drop in, dropped on our website if people wanna sign up, but that didn't really go. Okay, um, it, it, it is, I don't think it's true anymore. Israel was once not part of a regional group, um, but it now is in New York is effectively part of, um, of the Western group in New York. And so I think you know, Israel, Israel can run for the Security Council and actually is, is trying to, I believe, in, in a number of years, um, doesn't really have much of a chance. So, you know. Do you I, think it, it could happen? It, technically, they, technically they can. Technically okay. they can. And, and, I, and I believe that they are, um, but, I, but I don't think they have much of a chance. If, if it's competition within the Western group, they won't get it. It would only work if other Western countries would agree to sort of step, step aside and allow Israel to have a, um, uh, to have sort of a, um, a guaranteed seat from the Western group. But if other right. Western countries compete, whether it's Germany or others, um, then yeah. Right. Okay. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today uh, for this insightful conversation. Next week, we are joined by Yossi Klein and Levy to really dissect and do a deep dive into Zion and anti-Zionism. Uh, make sure to sign up for that conversation, all our discussions. Uh, you can help donate. You can support our work at ccfpeace.com. That's ccfpeace.com. Uh, before we go, Hillel, just one more time, where can people find you on social media? Because you're definitely a must follow on there. Thank you. They can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, at my name, Hillel Neuer, which is N-E-U-E-R, or UN Watch uh, as well. And our website is unwatch.org. I dropped it into the chat. People can see it there and would love to uh, see you guys on social media. And thank you for your support. And I want to thank your organization for the great work that you're doing. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, we hope to see everyone in future events. Please stay safe. Thank you, Hillel. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.